Well, back in the 1980s, which I think is the golden age of television, there were a lot of pretty cool shows out. And one of the shows that my brothers and I liked to watch was The A-Team. The A-Team. And The, the A-Team was basically a bunch of retired special forces guys that would go out on these missions to rescue people and save people and take down bad guys. And every once in a while in a television series, there's like a, a character they create that's iconic. And I would say the most iconic character in the A-team was Mr. T, B.A. Baracus. He's just a great character. In fact, he pretty much kept his hair, his beard, his, his, uh, his, his character the same even in real life after that because it was so iconic. In fact, he became a Christian preacher, by the way. I don't know if you know that, but he became a Christian preacher. And I think he still preaches. But one of the things about Mr. T is he loved to use the word fool. Remember that? So he'd be like, that crazy fool. Or I ain't getting on no plain fool. And he would use that language all the time. Now, I suspect <clears throat> that if my mom had been in the room at the time, she might have had something to say about that. Most moms probably don't want their kids using that kind of language applied to all the circumstances of life, but it does aptly describe many people, does it not? The Bible even says the fool says in his heart there is no God, so atheists are fools. And in the scriptures, sometimes, unfortunately, we're called fools. Galatians chapter 3 opens up with this declaration, oh foolish Galatians. Now imagine if we open the service like that today. You bunch of fools. <clears throat> we have a message for you. You'd be offended, right? So what, what's going on here? Well, the big idea, as I've already alluded to in Galatians, is that the beginning and the end of the gospel is faith in Christ's merits. The beginning and the end of the gospel is faith in Christ's merits. His merits the merits that he accomplished. Now, if you digest that for a little bit, what it's meant to do is it's meant to remind you that it's not your merits. It's Christ's merits. We're resting in, trusting in, believing in, embracing Christ's efforts, Christ's sacrifice, Christ's righteousness, Christ's identity, Christ's conquering of the, day, the grave as our own. And we need to be reminded on occasion not to fall back into self-derived merits, which, by the way, every single false religion and ideology in the world will tell you is the way to heaven, nirvana, Brahma, the eternal kingdom, or whatever they're, they're aiming for. Every one of them. There's probably not a world religion I haven't studied on some level. Every one of them at the end of the day says, this is what you need to do to perform for God or the gods. Every single one. But that, that's not the language of scripture. We believe that the wise man trusts in God and his grace alone and realizes that it's Christ's accomplishment applied to us that is the source of our salvation. So don't feel prey to it. However, on occasion, Christians can fall. It's like they start with grace, like I'm just such a sinner. I, my life's a mess. I'm, I'm trusting in Jesus. I'm surrendering to Christ. I'm repenting of my sins. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then over the duration of their Christian walk, they start to trust in their own efforts. 
And perhaps this could be true of you too. So how do we avoid that? Well, first of all, there's several things in the text that we're taught. The first one is just to be aware, to beware of the possibility of evil influences, to be cognizant of the fact that you could be being led astray. So keep your guard up, as they say, in your own life. He says to the Galatian church, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You've seen Christ in the cross. You know about his resurrection. You've heard the gospel. What in the world's going on? Who's got their claws into you? Who has convinced you otherwise? Now the word foolish here literally means stupid. That's what it means. It means you've been mentally duped. You're believing in a lie. You've traded truth for falsehood. They had experienced grace, as have we. They've been transformed by grace, as have we. And now they stupidly or foolishly were teaching others that certain religious experiences were necessary for salvation. If you, if you study the history of the Christian church, you'll know that many churches start with the gospel of grace and they move to something else. Some teach that the baptismal waters are what regenerate you even though there's no indication of that anywhere in the Bible. Some might teach, well, if you, if you give a lot of money, you're charitable. That's going to get you into heaven. Did someone just put this bottle of water here? <clears throat> I could be snuck up on it. I wouldn't even notice. <laughs> Was it someone short? <laughs> Who was it? Oh, Karen. Okay, thank you, Karen. <clears throat> As many of you know, I, I have a, 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 a hiatal hernia, I think they call it. <clears throat> so sometimes my stomach acts up. So I'm just saying that because I want you to know I don't have COVID. Okay? <laughs> so. <clears throat> so they'd started off <clears throat> with grace, and then <clears throat> they, they started buckling. And as in our previous study, we learned that w- the one physical sign seal of old co- being part of the old covenant, which some people associate with law, was male circumcision on the eighth day. So some false teachers had come, had come into the church and started saying, look, I know you're Gentiles, but you guys haven't been circumcised yet. <clears throat> you're not obeying the old covenant law. So you need to start doing all these various rituals if you're going to be okay with God. And this is when Paul blew his theological stack and he, he challenged them. No, 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 no. If you want to get circumcised, get circumcised, that's fine. But that's not necessary for salvation, nor are the dietary laws, nor are the other efforts that God commended under the, the previous covenant. It also says here that they've been bewitched. That's an interesting word. And it means to envy or to be fascinated by something. So this wasn't just mentally they were interested in this message of adding works to salvation, but they were emotionally, psychologically, if you will, being being drawn to it. They were allured by it. They were spellbound by it. They were mesmerized by it, you could say. And 
The idea here is that it's more than just they were believing in these lies, but attitudinally, they were starting to allow these lies to shape their own desires. And this is what, by the way, this is what makes falsehood very difficult to root out of many people's lives. It's one thing to have a logical, biblical, theological conversation with someone and to take them to scripture if they believe in error and say, look, look what the scripture says here. Look what the scripture says here. Look what the scripture says here. But when they've had an emotional encounter, an emotional experience, they've bought into it. It's very difficult sometimes to teach people otherwise. And especially people that are more emotionally driven, when they've had an emotional encounter or experience with something that's false, and then you're like, well, that's actually not true. Well, it's been my experience that it's true. So we have to be careful not just to not believe, not just to check the mind and make sure we're believing the right thing, but we also have to be careful not to allow our emotions, our desires to lead us into falsehood, to be mesmerized by falsehood, to be lured into falsehood, to feel a certain comfort in it. And by the way, telling someone who's seeking to live out the Christian life, especially this is true of new believers, well, hey, if you just do these five things, or you just do these 10 things, your life's gonna be great. That's how you're gonna be made right with God. Oh, okay, I like checklists, I can do that. But that's not the way it works. We have to continually rest in the grace of God for our salvation. Well, how is it that Christians can be led astray in this way? Can it happen in the modern era? Yes, it can. In his commentary on Galatians, Alan Cole, and I heard, I've heard accounts of this as well, but he has a good one here. He records the account of a group of pastors during World War II in Germany. You you do know that the vast majority of the church in Germany went along with Hitler? You know that, right? They didn't push back. They, They went along with Hitler. Now, fortunately, after World War II, he recalls, quote, that there was a group, quote, lamenting that they had been misled by demonic forces, end quote. And as these group of pastors met after World War II, we're like, what were we thinking? How did we get led astray? How could we be supportive of this tyrant? What were we doing? How could we not see what was going on in culture? Sound familiar, by the way? A senior pastor stood up and he said, quote, gentlemen, we have all been very foolish. He just admitted it. We were wrong. If you've been wrong, step number one is admit it and then make the necessary corrections. Never think that you are immune to lies, even if you're a seasoned pastor, a church leader. Again, look at how many from our own tribe have been duped by the seemingly endless list of false ideologies that are being pumped out by the mainstream media and establishment politicians and special interest groups in our culture. I've heard many Christians say, this isn't the candidate I grew up in. It's happening so fast, so rapidly. The seeds were planted a long time ago, by the way, a long time ago. But we have Christians actively promoting, you know, the latest and the greatest media focus without thinking through the implications or thinking through what's actually being said. And we find out later, it was a lie. We were duped. It's, it's a difficult world, but you your first response to what you see in the mainstream media kind of has to be, I don't believe this. It's super weird to say that because I'm, 
I'm not trying to undermine journalism, but they've undermined themselves. And many of the politicians have undermined themselves. And the church, unfortunately, many within the church, just they believe it because CBC says it or some premier says it. Well, if you're a seasoned follower of Christ, one of the things we need to do is to remember what we used to believe, (laughs) to remember that Christ was crucified, that he alone is the way to eternal life. Now, there's a lot of things. I think it's important for us to to be introspective. I'm big into being introspective, like evaluate yourself, be ruthless with yourself. Think about the influences, the the mental, the the mind games you might play with yourself or the things you allow to, to settle in your mind that might lead you astray. There's many things that can lead us astray from trusting in Christ and Christ alone, living for him, following him, sacrificing our all for him. One is comfort. Susie and I were talking about this this week, how whether we like it or not, we're all creatures of comfort. If it's a little too cold, a little too warm, a little too sunny, there's not enough cash, we don't feel that great, it can easily throw us off. And there's a lot of things in this world that will make you feel very uncomfortable if you're a Christian. You know that, right? Very uncomfortable. It's becoming increasingly uncomfortable being a Christian in the modern era. Well, we're supposed to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Christ suffered, Christ was persecuted, Christ was already crucified. So a mature believer says, I'm prepared to go through discomfort in order to honor the Lord. But a Christian that's starting to drift will say, no, I don't want to be uncomfortable. I'm going to do everything in my power to rid myself of discomfort often at the expense of standing for Christ. Others might ruminate, well, if I suffer, Christ must have abandoned me. I mean, after all, I signed up for this Christian thing. Doesn't that mean my life's gonna be a bed of roses? No. Your suffering will increase if you follow Christ. Your eternal suffering will be once and for all dealt with. You don't have to worry about that. I'll share a verse in a little bit to this effect, but your suffering will increase because you, by virtue of professing your faith in Jesus Christ, are saying that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and that offends the establishment, and that offends every person that has not yet surrendered themselves to Jesus. It's very offensive. The God, we don't need to be offensive ourselves in terms of our persona, but the gospel is divisive. The gospel is div- is, is, um, divides families. Jesus talked about that in his earthly ministry. Others might say, well, I was raised in a family or a culture that taught me to perform for God. And even though I know I'm supposed to be trusting in God's grace and God's grace alone, I still feel like I have to do something. My wife and I come from very different backgrounds, very different churches, but we've talked about the fact that because we were raised in very legalistic churches that said, well, it's by grace, but here's your list of 500 rules you have to perform in order to be right with the church, you sort of grow up with this weird idea. Well, I know it's grace, but I, f- I still feel like I got to perform for everyone else. You know, the church that I was in was so ridiculous. We weren't allowed to drive red cars because those are sexual colors. <laughs> you couldn't have drums on the stage. Those are the devil's instrument. Right? You had to wear a suit and tie and white shirt because after all, that's what Jesus wore. You know? And, and that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. They, they just loaded on the, just loaded them on. 
You can hardly keep track of it. Well, it's kind of hard to live by grace if every single Sunday you're being told you have to perform to meet up with the expectations of the the group. Others might just drift away because they're not content with the old, old story. They need something fresh. I mean, the gospel's been around for 2,000 years. Can't we update it? Or sin in your life. Now, we're all going to have sin in our lives, but what we want to do is we want to deal with that sin as quickly as possible. We want to confess our sin, get help, move move in a righteous direction. But at the same time, many Christians allow sin to take hold of them. If they've, if they've sinned enough, they eventually start to excuse it and they don't see it as that big of a deal. And then they start to adapt and adjust their gospel to it. It's like, well, somehow I got to find a gospel that allows me to be a reprobate and say I'm still a Christian. So there's just compromise and confusion all woven in. All of these, all of these things take us off base. They can bewitch us. They can fool us. So keep your mind sharp. Remember what Jesus has accomplished. Secondly, ask probing questions like, how did my salvation occur? Now, the new believer that's in the baptismal tank may have a basic answer to that, but over time, it becomes more complex. We understand God's working behind the scenes. We we kind of flesh out all our, our theological terms. We know what regeneration is. We know what justification is, sanctification is, glorification. All these theological words we find in scripture, we learn and we grow, right? So we're trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, repenting of your faith and believing in him. That's, that qualifies you to be baptized. That's how it worked in the New Testament. That's how it works in the New Testament church. Some churches get that wrong, by the way. They teach, baptismal, they teach discipleship classes and baptismal classes before baptism. That's getting the cart before the horse because you're like, well, I want to make sure you are a really mature, knowledgeable believer before we baptize you. Didn't work that way with the Ethiopian eunuch. It didn't work that way with the 3,000 that, that trusted in Christ in the book of Acts. They believed and they were baptized. And then the discipleship process starts. We are learning and you're growing. So as we grow, one of the things that helps to keep us squared up with the gospel is to ask, how did my salvation occur? And Paul gives us some inside information here in verse two. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So we have a, two options here, by works of the law or by the spirit. So this is actually a theologically loaded question. Every mature believer knows this, that the reason why you were converted is because the Holy Spirit did something in you that you could not do in yourself. So how exactly are we saved? Well, the language of the text, receiving the Spirit, is meant here to capture the whole work of Christ and God in our lives. Our salvation, which was decided by the Father, which was worked for by the Son, is applied by the Holy Spirit. So in space and time, it's the work of the Spirit that actually convicts us of sin, makes us regenerate, meaning spiritually alive. And therefore, when Paul, when Paul speaks of the Spirit here, he's not just talking about the Spirit giving gifts or the Spirit 
the, the role of a spirit to the exclusion of Christ or the Father, but the application of the decisions made by the Father and the work accomplished by Christ to your life. It says in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's a beautiful statement, folks. According to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior. So what is the source of our faith and our spiritual life? Me? No. The church established? No. The Holy Spirit of God. We need to remember that. Now let's talk about the law. He says, not by works of the law. So th- this, is, this is one thing that we've been thinking a lot about, at least for the last couple of years in our church, because many people that grew up in Christian churches have this interesting idea that the law is actually bad and grace is actually good. Now, in, in Galatians, Paul makes it very clear you are not saved by the law. You're not saved by the law. He says it over. You're not saved by the law. You're not saved by the law. Did you get it yet? You're not saved by the law. You're not saved by the law. It's grace, 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 grace. But in saying that, is he saying the law is bad? The law is terrible. God made a mistake when he gave all those laws in the old covenant, when he gives laws to, it's all bad. Law is bad. We don't, we don't live by law. We do what we want. We have radical freedom. We're antinomian, anti-law. Is that what we are? Is that what he means by the law? No. The law is a beautiful thing. It just doesn't save. Some of the beauties of the law, it places boundaries in how we worship and interact with God. Tells us you don't use God's name in vain. You check your heart before you go to the house of worship, lest you worship in vain. So it places boundaries on the way we worship and interact with God. It also places boundaries on human behavior. Don't steal, don't covet, don't murder, don't take your neighbor's wife. How can that be bad? Those are all good things that protect social order. We're into those things. The law also protects you from being harmed or abused or put to death in the social order. This is why in the the Ten Commandments, there's one that talks about not bearing false witness. We don't want people perjuring themselves in court because then, An innocent person could spend the rest of their life in jail or be put to death in some countries. So the law is not bad. We need to get this idea out of our mind. The law is not bad. The law is good and it's still in effect, actually. Maybe not all the ceremonial components like the dietary laws and circumcision, but the law is a beautiful thing. We are pro-law. We wish that our country's laws would reflect to a greater degree divine law. It's a lot less confusing, by the way, if, it, if that were the case, because God's law is perfect and pure and consistent. So these things, law is not bad. Law, the laws of God are still relevant. But there's a fourth reason God gives us the law, which leads us to grace. And Romans chapter 7, verse 16, makes this very clear. Listen to this. Now, if I do what I do not want... So in other words, if I, if I don't want to cheat, lie, steal, and adulterate, 
but I do those things anyway. Now I have a conflict. It goes on to say, I agree with the law that it is good. What does that mean? It means the very fact that I am seeking to, let's say, be an honest person instead of a liar. Even if I fail to do it, I'm agreeing that that's a good thing. I'm agreeing that it's, it's good to tell the truth, to be honest, to be a person marked by integrity. The law then shows, listen to this, the law shows me my failures, not the law's imperfections. The purpose of the law, we don't throw it out. We're not like, we're anti-law. We don't like law. That's Old Testament. We don't like any of the stuff in the Old Testament. We don't read the Old Testament anymore. We're not anti-law. We see the blessings in the law, but because we will always on some level fail to measure up to it, it reveals my own imperfections. And therefore, when I find myself at a point where like, God, I have tried my hardest to serve you, to worship you. And why in the world do I keep failing? What am I supposed to do? Then God comes and he says, how about some grace? That's what you need. And you're like, oh, I need grace. So then as we receive God's grace, God, only not, God only, uh, not only helps us to overcome many of our sins over the course of our lives, but he also gets all the worship for it. So this is, really, this is a really critical understanding. It's you know, kind of like in marriage. Like marriage is a covenant. It's an agreement for life. And it's founded on this core principle of love. Love and commitment, and loyalty and oneness and unity and being one flesh and being sacrificial. But there still are rules. It's not the core of the marriage, but there's, there's still are rules. Like there's certain things you, you can't say to your spouse if you're gonna have a good marriage. Certain things you can't do, certain things you can't forget. The rules aren't the core of the marriage, but they put boundaries on it to, to allow it to be functional. And in our relationship with God, the core of our relationship with God is his sovereign grace, his mercy, his love for us. Doesn't mean we throw all the rules out. Yeah, we, we want to still live well, but it's as a response to God's grace in our lives. So faith then, the subject of our faith, of course, is Christ, his work, God's grace. And we need to make sure we remind ourselves of that regularly. Third, finish what you started. He uses that foolish word again in verse three. Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? You're now being perfected by the flesh. In other words, having started off trusting in the work of Christ applied by the spirit of God, now you're trying to go back to all the laws that you couldn't measure up to in the first place that brought you to Christ in the, in, in the beginning? It doesn't make sense. One of our brothers today quoted Philippians 1.6 in his baptismal testimony, for he who began a good work in us will, not might, not may, will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It's very true. Christ is the one that's sustaining and carrying us forward. If you've experienced the supernatural work of God in your life, why seek perfection through the very futile man-made efforts that you failed to measure up to in the first place that brought you to Christ in the first place? In other words, don't fall back into the old ways. When we fall back, that's called apostasy. An apostate is someone who believed and trusted and then they no longer do. And sometimes apostasy is theological. It's like, 
I no longer believe in the Trinity or I no longer believe in the virgin birth or I no longer believe that Jesus died on a real wooden Roman cross. Apostasy can be theological. It's like I deny the cardinal truths of Christianity or it could just be very practical. Oh, I believe truly that Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God, but my life is a complete disaster and I don't care. Or I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin and but then you live as though you're trying to earn it. You live as though you're trying to appease and appeal to God. Like, Lord, do you still love me? You know, like the flower, he, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, loves me not. You're not quite sure from one day to the next. We need to trust in the eternal love of God. And we need to be able to suffer, of course, for him. The Bible calls us to suffer for Christ. When we think back to all of the challenges, this might not apply to you if you've been a Christian for like 24 hours, but if you think back to all the challenges you have experienced because of your faith, and I'm sure there are many of you that have many stories you could tell. Verse four says, did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? In other words, did you go through all of that trust in Christ and rely upon him and you're persecuted as a result of it. And maybe you lost some family members over it. Maybe you got fired at work because of it. And now you're going back to works. By the way, we need in the Christian church to revive this biblical notion that part, part of being a Christian is suffering for Christ. It's inevitable. Now, we don't need to unnecessarily suffer for Christ. Not like, hey, could someone hurt me, please? I want to suffer for Christ. But part of being a Christian is to suffer for Christ. In the Western church, we try to avoid it at all costs, seems to me. But part of being a Christian is suffering for Christ. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The suffering of Christ, which led to his eternal glory, how do we participate in that? We suffer for him. We carry his cross. We walk in his footsteps. We take a few punches in the face for Jesus. We're persecuted even to the point of death for Jesus. That's part of what it means to share in his sufferings. So don't throw away the rewards that you have experienced when you laid down your life for him by turning back to works-based religion. Fourth, look at all God has done through the gospel. Verse five, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did the spirit save you or did your effort save you? The spirit. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. We were saved because someone told us the truth and entered in through our ears, into our minds and the Holy Spirit took that and he renewed us and he regenerated us. Fifth, consider God's redemptive work through history. Again, many Christians, so just think of history as being divided by the, the cross. So after the cross, that's the era we're in and there's before the cross. And people are like, oh, everything before the cross was all law works. You had to sort of impress your way into God. 
This is why we have some Christians that falsely teach. This is the age of grace. That was the age of the law. It's false. It actually contributes to the Galatian heresy because it makes people think, well, at certain times in in history, you can be saved by law and at certain points, you can be saved by grace. That's false. It's always been by grace. So in order to make that abundantly clear, what the writer does is he points all the way back to Abraham. Remember who Abraham was? The first Jew, the father of the Jewish nation that would receive under the old covenant, covenant and law all written out for them in the first, well, 38 at least of the 39 books of the Bible, because Genesis obviously is pre-old covenant. And Abraham, when he first encounters God, it's like, well, if, if, if salvation used to be by works of the law, then wouldn't you think works of the law would be the reason why God looked to Abraham, commended Abraham? No, that's not how it happens. Galatians 3 Verses six to nine says, just as Abraham, oh, Abraham, what did he do? Believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Just put his faith in God. He didn't perform for God. He believed God. What was God's, what was the substance of what God gave him to believe in? Here it is. Know then that those that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So if you really want to be like Abraham, if you really are following the footsteps of Abraham, you will not make the mistake of trying to appeal to God by your works. You will trust him. You will rely upon him and him alone. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That's interesting. God is, Paul here is tying the whole message of the Bible into one unified uh, story or message. What is it? In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God has always saved and blessed us based upon our faith in his grace. Never, not since the beginning of time. There there will not be one person in heaven who's there because they were just a really, really, really extra special person. Nobody. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We do that. We grade on a curve. Okay, this is my friend pool because, you know, we're, we're buddies and we get along, we think alike and they treat me well. These are my enemies because they abuse me and they don't speak well of me. That's how we do it. But in God's eternal plan, we're all, check this out, by nature, we're all enemies of God. All of us, by nature, we are rebellious little punks. That's who we are by nature. And some might be more punkish than others. You know, if you got a bunch of kids, they're all little punks, right? They need to be disciplined and reformed. But some are worse than others. But if you have a kid that's the real black sheep, it doesn't mean that the others get away with what they're doing. All of us are rebels without a cause, a justifiable cause. And God, by his grace, seeks us out and he actually makes us righteous to the point he calls us his friends, saints, co-laborers, heirs of his eternal kingdom. It's a wonderful thing. So since Abraham was living centuries earlier 
and was the one with whom the original Abrahamic covenant was made, people might try to point to him and say it was by works and God's like, no, no. From the first conversation, God blessed Abraham and commended Abraham because he put faith in God's promises, not himself. And so should we. And not just today, but tomorrow as well. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. The world will constantly, the world, the flesh, and the devil, actually, all of them, your three enemies, those around you that don't love God, your own fleshly desires, demonic attack, the world, the flesh, and the devil will constantly try to get you to perform in order to be made right with God. God wants us to trust and rest and believe. If I buy my wife a bundle of roses, I don't bring her the bundle of roses hoping that she'll stay married to me. I give them to her as an expression of my love and affection for her. So works are important. We're not anti-works. We're not anti-law. We're not anti-good deeds. We believe in all of that. But it's a response to what God has done by his grace, which we have received through faith. Back in the time of the Reformation, they captured this through what they called the five solas, meaning the five onlys. How are we saved? We're saved through grace alone or by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which was revealed to us by the scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone. It's all God. It's all him. And we've been recipients of that. So let's stay true to the gospel. Let's make sure we're, if we're preaching it to the lost, that we're preaching it clearly. And even in our own lives as Christians, let's not become the foolish harvestites, <laughs> the foolish Christians of 2022 who have drifted away from the gospel of grace and put our faith and trust in our own efforts. Let's trust in Christ and Christ alone each and every day. What a freeing message and what a blessed message for each of us. 